Hey guys, welcome to episode 56 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So I want to apologize in advance. I know I sound a little raspy today, but that's because I just had my bachelorette party and I got back today, this morning. So I, I still lost my voice a little bit, but I'm here for you. Yeah. I mean, look, she was in the club, just like 50 Cent, getting her party on. We actually went to zero clubs. Okay. Well, I just always yeah. wanted to say that. <laughs> So, anyway. I'm not a club person. You know what? Neither am I. No. That's why we're together. We had a great time. We went to New York City, and we stayed at the Marriott East Side, so it was really pretty. And um, we were kind of, like, in the action, so we got to walk to a lot of places, and we went to a rooftop bar. Then we... I'm very low-key. Guys, I'm really not that exciting. And then we went to Carmine's. It was so delicious. Oh, my God. I'm still thinking about that Titanic dessert. It's incredible. Every time I go there, which is very uh, rare. Oh, my God. Ice cream is so good. I know. And then um, we went to a comedy club, which was really funny. So we were laughing the whole night. Well, I'm glad. Yes, it was fun. John still has to have his bachelor party. Yep. Still have to have it. He's kind of in the dark right now. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Completely. I just hope that there are no clubs where girls are <laughs> naked. I just I I just don't You just said naked. I did just say naked. All right, I apologize. Naked. I don't want it. I'm not into it. I'm good. I think it would be funny to see a reaction. That's how I, I think feel. my eyeballs would just be like out of my head, not because I like what I'm looking at, but I'm just shocked at what I'm looking at. That it's there. That it's just in my face. Yeah, I just I'm not into that, but anyway, Okay, so we are going to get right into this episode. For the past few weeks, we've been hearing a lot of talk, whether it's from our listeners, because a lot of listeners have reached out about this documentary, or it's from people in our lives. Like people even talked about it at the bachelorette party. There's a new HBO documentary called I Love You Now Die. And that covers the case of Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter. Now we were familiar with this case because Well, first of all, when it was taking place and it was all over the news, there was also a dateline about it. So there's a lot of information out about this case. But most of the coverage of it was very anti-Michelle Carter saying that, I mean, if you don't know what this case is about, a teenage girl and a teenage boy are in a relationship and they think that she is going to provoke him into committing suicide. And he ends up committing suicide, and then she is blamed for it when they go back and look at the text messages. Now, the text messages she sends are extremely damning. And and she was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter in the suicide of Roy and was sentenced to 15 months in prison. Now, of course, she has her appeals, but in February of 2019, her appeals failed. So that's when she began her 15-month jail sentence. But this new documentary that came out was a little bit more empathetic towards Michelle Carter, saying that she had some mental issues of her own that that made her do what she did. So it's very um, split right now in how people feel about whether or not she should be punished the way that she is being punished. Now, we don't want to get into that case yet, even though it is so interesting, only because there are so many developments still taking place. And I know Michelle Carter's looking into writing a book. So we'd really want to wait to cover that one. But it is one we want to cover. But I thought that the Carter-Roy case brought up two really good questions. And these questions are, 
does another human being have ownership of another's actions? And also, has social media negatively affected our society? I wanted to find a case that made us think about those two questions. So we could kind of, in a way, talk about the Carter Roy case while talking about another one. Because it's all too common that we hear cases of social media influencing people to do things. And it can happen on a small scale, like you feeling the pressure of posting on social media or you feeling the pressure and committing suicide, because unfortunately that happens a lot in our society. Yeah, it does. And and also, it's it's so funny because when you start to do some research and you start to see that there's been other cases that are a lot smaller that kind of led up to what we're dealing with now, and because there's just so many of them, you know? And right. I guess it makes you say, well... Yeah, I guess this is an issue. And I don't think I don't think we've been able to figure out how we handle it yet. Right, like how to tackle it. Right, exactly. So I think this is like perfect timing to talk about the smaller ones that led up to one of the biggest things that we're seeing now on HBO and ID and all these other places that are doing it now. So Right. I think that these earlier cases set precedents. And the fact that legally you can't hold someone responsible for doing something like this is going to make later cases also not be able to hold people responsible. So we're covering a case today from 2006. That's when the crime takes place. Now the court trial is going to take place in 2008. But we are dealing with MySpace today, guys. A blast from the past. Yes, it's very nostalgic to some people, including myself. Um, I remember creating my first MySpace when I was in seventh grade. It was a very big deal. I actually kept it a secret from my parents. They didn't know I had a MySpace. And then they found out. And then they just like made me take like the weird things that I set off because I was like super weirdo. And then that was it. Those. I, you were really one of those? I was one of those like weird girls that like, yeah, like an emo, like, or like, oh, like in the weird about me, like it didn't make sense. It was just song lyrics. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do that. I was always, um, pretty much low-key i pretty much just had one because everybody i knew had one i think that's the way guys were though yeah girls all tried to be myspace famous the only thing i did like to do was put music in my profile i guess or my my space yes everyone did do that i did like to do that and i like to change that very frequently so i was always like putting out really cool music on there but other than that i was pretty low-key i tried to always pick a song that like nobody heard of before so i was cooler than everybody because it was underground yes oh my god Okay. Do you still want to get married? <laughs> yes, I still do. Okay. With you and all your underground music. <laughs> so this is the height of MySpace, 2006, the time we're talking about. And now I believe it's more of a music thing than a networking thing. But it really was the first in the social media revolution that we're talking about. And it created a type of social pressure. So there were things that MySpace had that made you feel that social pressure that Facebook and Instagram do with the likes. But with MySpace, it was more of um, how many comments could you get on your pictures and also um, your top eight. So on your main page, you were allowed to pick your top eight friends that you had. And that meant that you were best friends with them. But getting on someone's page in their top eight put a lot of pressure on you. And if you fell out, it meant you were fighting. So it was kind of on display. 
in ways that friendships never were before. Yeah, it's it's weird too because like I know for me, I don't even remember what my top eight was. Whereas I'm sure you do. I remember 100 percent my yeah, top eight. I don't. Eight. <laughs> I really. I can honestly say I I don't know. I don't remember what my top eight is or was. I'm sorry. Well, it's different because boys and girls are a little different sometimes. It's true. Now with my space, we want to say before we begin this case because it is a little bit different than Facebook and Instagram of today, where this whole term of MySpace famous came out, meaning that like you had a lot more friends than you did in real life and you became MySpace famous or cool on MySpace if most of your friends were people that you didn't know in real life. And in retrospect, this is super creepy because most people who had MySpaces were in middle school and high school and you're being friends with people from outside your community. We really didn't know how bad the predators were on the internet back then. So I think in retrospect, we're like, holy crap, that was dangerous. But now we're more aware of what these internet predators are capable of. So it was kind of like an early internet thing was being friends with a lot of people you didn't know in real life. Yeah. It's also like nowadays, there's so many different divisions within the police departments and, and all just privatized, I guess, privatized groups where they they look for predators and they kind of catch them kind of like, um, like, uh, like the whole Chris Hansen catch a predator type of thing. Right. Where it's like, you know, you know, they, they lure them in with this other agency that's either affiliated with the police or is the police and they work together to catch people. So like now they really do that where back then I don't think they really were doing that because this wasn't really a thing. Like it wasn't really a, a big thing to worry about. Right. Now people know about it. So it's a little bit more managed, I would say. Also, MySpace, very different than Facebook. Um, you have to on Facebook, make a first and last name. So your identity does have to be created and put out there, even if it could be fake. But MySpace, you didn't even need to have a real first and last name. You mostly made up what your profile name was on MySpace. And it was always something weird. And then you could easily lie about your age. Now, this pressure of MySpace, because it was the first social media, parents didn't truly understand what it was or how far it reached. It caused many problems amongst adolescents from across the country and even the world. And one of the girls who felt this pressure was Megan Meyer. Megan, at just 13, felt the pressure of the whole world closing in on her. She had been diagnosed with depression and ADD, and her parents worked hard to make her feel secure with herself as she was growing into being a young adult. However, they didn't know that what would prove to be the undoing of their own daughter was already in their home. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The Myers had known each other since they were in second grade. They went to prom together and finally married in 1990 when Tina was 19 and Ron was 20. They moved to the nearby town of O'Fallon, Missouri, which was broken into smaller sections, theirs being called Dardine Prairie. The Myers moved into Waterford Crossing subdivision, which put them right in the middle of the Missouri and Mississippi River. 
and 30 minutes away from St. Louis. It seemed to be the perfect place to raise kids and keep their fairy tale like story going. And it seemed like that was going to happen when in 1992 they had a daughter named Megan. She was this little chunky thing, always with an attitude, her mother said in an interview. They couldn't wait to watch their daughter grow up in the same neighborhood. It was the place where the neighbors talked in their driveways and had barbecues where the whole cul-de-sac was invited. They watched the Super Bowl together and watched out for each other and their children. A neighbor states that everyone had each other's garage codes in case anything ever went wrong. However, as Megan got older, her carefree and friendly demeanor began to change. A neighbor told reporters that she demonstrated worrisome behavior. It seemed that her mood would switch quickly and quite dramatically, wanting to make sure their daughter was okay. Tina and Ron took their daughter to their pediatrician. After visiting several doctors, including a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and having tests done, Megan was prescribed three medications, one an antidepressant, one medication for ADD, and another a mood stabilizer. This is pretty serious medication for a 13-year-old to be on, I would say. And I would have to agree with you. I mean, I mean there's, I'm sure there's a lots of people out there that's maybe on one of these or maybe... Well, the mood it, stabilizer is just because she is taking the antidepressants. I guess so, yeah, because like you got to counterbalance what's going on. Yeah, ah, those that's extreme because you don't know how that's going to be like long term. You know, like if there's any long term effects right. because she's so young. I will say as a teacher, um, the ADD medication is something that I do see a lot, especially at younger and younger ages now. But the antidepressant is what kind of... I think is the more serious of the three only because at 13, it's pretty young to be on an antidepressant only because of the side effects that it can cause as well as like the weaning off of it. So coming off of an antidepressant is always pretty hard. So it's interesting that a 13 year old was put on this medication so quickly. So that was only like, it was a red flag for me. I just also, it's crazy to how like quickly doctors will just prescribe antidepressants they kind of just throw it around like candy it's kind of weird uh you know someone can even just be dealing with you know a loss and they'll be like here here's some antidepressants this is in the early 2000s when statistically um that was the most amount of americans that were on antidepressants i mean nowadays i think doctors are a little bit more reluctant to hand out that antidepressant prescription especially to young adolescents yeah so I think, you know, lessons have kind of been learned a little bit because of effects that it has have caused because a huge side effect of the antidepressant is suicidal thoughts. Yeah. And that's not good. It's not good for anyone, but it's also not good for right. a 14 year old. But anyway. So Tina recalls that Megan's biggest cause for distress was her weight. She was always comparing herself to other girls her age, and she just never felt like she was enough. And I have to say that, you know, that's. For a young girl who's 13 and in middle school, weight is that's when you start realizing like, hey, I look different than these other girls. So it is a pretty hard thing to go through. So I do understand where Megan's coming from there in the comparisons. So and it's it must have been hard for Tina to watch her daughter go through that because you want to protect your children always, but you also want to teach them that. They're just as good as everyone else, but they're starting to realize for the first time that they might not be. To add to that Mm -hmm. is that everyone's pretty mean in middle school and in high school. Oh, yeah. I mean, guys are mean to girls. Girls are mean to girls. It's just, it's a kind of rough environment, so. 
It is, especially when you don't look like everyone else. True. So she's adamant that Megan's depression and ADD didn't define her, though. Um, she told reporters that she wanted them to know that Megan wasn't just this depressed kid every step of the way. She loved things like going fishing with her father and watching horror movies and playing with her small dog, a chihuahua. The neighborhood kids also remembered Megan being a lot of fun. She would catch frogs with them and put them in their faces because they were afraid of them. She was always laughing and being theatrical. And in school, she did well. In sixth grade, Megan began to start having trouble with the girls in her grade. There was an ever-changing social structure that was put on display on MySpace. And Megan, who wasn't even allowed to have a MySpace page, felt very left out of the whole thing. That year, 2004, was made easier, however, by the moving in of the Drew family into the subdivision. The Drews had a daughter, Megan's age, who she befriended right away. However, her seventh grade year proved to be more difficult. Tina said that her daughter was desperately trying to fit in. What her parents had the most difficulty with was the fact that Megan wanted to change everything about herself, including how she looked in order to fit in. They felt like she was trying to look more grown up than she really was. Now, that's something that's true with these social media pages, where you see girls, even today, trying to act older and look older in their pictures so they receive more likes, more comments. And that's just kind of like the reality of things. But Megan wanted to fit in with this like popular group of girls at school. I don't blame her. You know, I mean, girl, like I said before, girls are mean to girls. You know, it's like, you know, you got to be up on your trends and what's cool. And, true. you know, and so it's, it's hard. It seemed that when Megan tried to be on top of the trends, the girls and the boys in her grade were making fun of her because of her weight. And because what she wore was never really like exactly what they were wearing because she weighed more than them. Yeah. Which is really sad. That's something I can completely relate to. I had that problem in middle school and the beginning of high school. And then I lost weight in high school and college and it's all back right now currently. We're working on that. But I can totally relate to her middle school years because that I think kind of created like your body image. Like my body image now I think goes back to the way I was treated in middle school. I think it molds you. And yeah. that t- like that time that we're talking about right here mm-hmm. is crucial. Oh, is, yeah, 100%. For your, you know, for your self-esteem, your, you know, your, your confidence, how, you know, how, like, you know, like how you said, how you know, view yourself. So that, that's difficult. It yeah. is really difficult. And then you feel like it is your whole world. And that's just kind of the way things are. And I feel bad for her that she was going through that. So I understand her parents seeing this as kind of like a deep depression that she's going through because it is hard to deal with when people are making fun of you for it. Um, Megan figured that if she was a part of the popular group of girls, then the boys wouldn't make fun of her any longer. But it didn't seem like that was working because eventually the girls are going to turn on Megan and begin picking on her as well because she was trying so desperately to fit in with them. So it just seems like a mean group of middle school kids, which they are. They're cruel. And I mean, it doesn't 100% define them either because it's a young age and sometimes we do stupid things. But sometimes you don't realize how like long lasting the things you say and do are when you're a kid, right? You're 12 years old, 13. You don't think that's going to affect someone. That's true. Hey, look, there's people who are in their 20s and, and older that still don't. So, hey, that's very true. You know what I mean? I once in middle school, let's get really real here. I never really told anybody this. In middle school, there was a boy who I liked so much. 
I won't say his name, but he asked, he called me and asked me out like to go like be his girlfriend. And I was so excited. And then I found out there was a joke. No. Yeah, I did. Because like at the next school dance, I thought I was going to like slow dance with him. And then everyone started laughing. Are you serious? Yeah, it's so traumatizing. Wow. I, I, I feel bad for you too yeah, now. <laughs> um, but at least you don't have to worry about that anymore. Right. But it's true. That, like things. <laughs> yes. Now I can dance with you. It'll be fine. But it's you. You don't forget those things. And yeah. here I am like going to be 30 years old and I'm still like, oh, F him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're too much. I know. So Megan's in a really tough spot right now. And her desperation is really kind of coming to a head here. But before we go on, let's take a break to hear from our first sponsor of the show, Vistaprint. When we first started the podcast, we wanted to do everything right the first time. Whether it comes to talking to sponsors, contacting sources, or requesting invites, we wanted people to know we were serious and that we were well-put-together professionals. Vistaprint was able to help us make those all-too-important first impressions great ones. With Vistaprint, you can create a truly professional, unique card in minutes. Vistaprint allows you to upload your own design or start with one of their professionally designed options. Vistaprint offers simple tools and a wide range of templates to choose from. All you have to do is pick the paper stock, style, and quantity that's right for you. You can choose your delivery speed, order, and receive your cards in as few as three days. Vistaprint uses only carefully selected links and responsibly sourced paper stocks. They also allow you to easily use your selected design on all future marketing moving forward. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed, or they'll make it right either by reprinting your order or offering a refund. Vistaprint wants you to be able to own the now in any situation, which is why our listeners will get 500 high-quality custom business cards starting at just $9.99. Just go visit vistaprint.com slash TCC. That's vistaprint.com slash TCC. Okay, let's get back to the show. During this same time, Megan's relationship with her neighbor, Sarah Drew, remember that family that moved in, got complicated as well. She knew she couldn't be friends with Sarah, the new girl, if she wanted to be popular. So she would only really play with Sarah if the girls she wanted to impress weren't around. Unfortunately, this is just the way... Things are when you get in that awkward adolescent age. Some kids can remain secure or find themselves the dominant in the social hierarchy, whereas others desperately try and belong while their self-esteem keeps them from ever fitting in. Outsiders, those in the neighborhood, described the girls, meaning Sarah and Megan, as being very different. They would say that Sarah, Sarah Drew, was prim and proper and obedient, while Megan was wilder and had a domineering personality. And I think that, you know, as most of us kind of know, when someone is being mistreated, they take it out on others. So I think what was happening here was that Megan was very domineering to Sarah because of how she was bullied at school. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. And you know what? That happens to a lot of people. So, and it seems like they were kind of... I don't want to say using each other, but she, um, I feel it like... It seems a little bit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it did. Yeah, and then, it, like, she was the dominant friend, but I'm sure Megan liked being the dominant friend in that relationship because she didn't get to feel that outside of that friendship. I call it, you know what I call it? Just so everybody knows. I call it the Batman-Robin complex because there could only be one Batman like in an, a group. 
and there could only be one Robin. Like, like, like within like. But a, there's always one dominant friend over the correct. other. Correct. Okay. I call it the Batman Robin complex. That's a uh, John exclusive. I don't know if it's a John I exclusive. I made that up. You sure you made you made that up, or did you? I'm hear taking that? credit probably, but I, okay. I mean I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I'm John heard it somewhere. <laughs> I don't even know, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Just know that there can only be one Batman, and there can only be one Robin. Thank you. That's what we'll walk away with. Yes. <laughs> so the girls had gotten into trouble separately regarding a secret that they were both keeping. The girls had made a fake MySpace account together. They used Megan's name, but they both had the password to it, and they posted on the page. Megan's aunt had found the page with the flashing Playboy symbol and told Tina and Ron about it. Megan admitted to creating it with Sarah, and her parents made her delete it in front of them. But the Myers never told the Drews about this incident. Sarah was also found out when Lori Drew, which is her mother, was going through a phone bill, and they found several long-distance calls to New York. When Lori asked her daughter about the calls, she said Megan was using their cell phone to call a boy that she had met online through MySpace. So she met a boy in New York on MySpace. Sounds a little bit like Nancy Drew. Get it? Really? Okay. Well, it, listen, it, it, <laughs> the opportunity presented itself. It did, it did. But, and hey, you took it. And you I did. Really I, did take I ran it. with that. But, yeah, but you know what? She's doing a little bit of investigation here, so... Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure she looked at her. Now it's 2006, so long distance does exist. So she probably looked at her bill, and it was like $600, and she's like, what? Also, don't forget minutes. Minutes was a thing. Oh, yes. I forgot about minutes being a thing. Yeah. Well, the Drews never told the Myers about this incident either. The way that Megan's mother would explain Megan and Sarah's relationship was that it went through many ups and downs. They would do all day Friday and all day Saturday, but then by the time Sunday came around, Megan would need her space. Sometimes this left Sarah feeling rejected, according to Tina, and that would greatly upset Sarah's parents. So it seemed like Megan just would sometimes get tired of hanging out with her, and then Sarah's parents were taking it personal. So the Drew's place in Waterford Crystal subdivision was an interesting one. They had moved into the very tight-knit community, and the others on the block described them as being pushy and annoying. They felt that Lori and Kurt Drew invited themselves to events and kept their neighbors talking for unusual amounts of time, something we can relate to and also find equally annoying. Whether this was true or not, we don't know. But what was true was that the Drews were getting very upset about the treatment of their daughter and the proximity of the two families made these things made things very uncomfortable. The Drews voiced their feelings to the Myers. An intern, Tina, spoke with her daughter, Megan, and asked her to stop blowing off Sarah. She basically said that she can't just call her when she's bored and blow her off when someone else wants to hang out. And I think that was the right approach to it. Tina saying you kind of can't string this girl along. You either be friends with her or you don't be friends with her. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know like what the protocol is. Well, middle school is a little different because that's when like when you're a young kid and when you're in elementary school, you're friends with the people that live close to you. Oh, totally. Listen, I could relate to that. I mean, I grew up in a, in a, in a small in a big city where you were friends with the kids that were on your block. Exactly. So I get that for sure. But now when you get older into middle school and you start developing your personalities and you become more of an individual, you find friends based on your likes. So this is the kind of time when a shift kind of starts to occur. So it makes sense that it would happen here. For a little while longer, their friendship lasted. 
Megan even went on a few family vacations with the Drew family. But despite the parents' attempts at intervention, the relationship between the two girls fizzled, and it actually ended quite bitterly with some name-calling. But Megan's relationship with the girl next door was not of her parents' highest concern. Their daughter getting bullied was, and she was being bullied quite aggressively. She was made fun of for her appearance and the clothing she wore. The only thing they could do was take Megan out of public school, and for eighth grade, they enrolled her at a nearby Catholic school called Immaculate Conception. There, the classes were smaller, so they felt like Megan could get the attention that she needed from her teachers. This way, also the teachers would be able to keep a better eye on what was going on within the student body, so there would be less bullying. With Catholic school also came uniforms, and that would alleviate the problem of Megan having to find something to wear every day and being worried about being made fun of. Tina said that the change she saw in Megan after her transfer to Catholic school was amazing. She wasn't paying as much attention to her hair or her makeup in the morning. As her time went on in her new school, Megan began to ask her mother for a MySpace page, as it would help her better communicate with her new friends. Because she now went to Catholic school, her friends didn't live in the same town. They came from kind of all over the place. That's kind of how Catholic schools work. Right. So to communicate better with them, because you can't use your cell phone minutes, and you only have your limited to like, what, 50 texts a month? So she wanted a MySpace page to communicate with them. I used to get in so much trouble from that. Uh, for that. It was the text for me that was really a big thing. It was never the minutes. How you doing now, though? You okay? Oh, we're good. We're good, Kay. We have unlimited. <laughs> yes. Everything. We're very lucky. So because of the earlier incidents with MySpace, the Myers were apprehensive to let Megan get her own page. She asked if she could start the page for her 14th birthday. She promised that she would allow them to see everything on it, and she would get approval before she saved anything. Eventually, the Myers did allow Megan to create a MySpace page with the following restrictions. Her parents were to have her password, and it had to be set to private. They had to approve all content, and they were to be in the room with her at all times while she was on the site. On September 13, 2006, Megan created a profile under the name Megan Baby. Baby with an I. Her site, everyone had a weird MySpace name. Everybody. What was yours? I can't say oh, it because right, it would be right. my, it's <laughs> my whole name. Just know that it was really clever. Okay. Uh, you know what, guys? She'll tell me, and then I'll tell you if it was good or cringy. Okay, you're going to delete this part? Yeah. <laughs> John's just laughing. Okay. No, All it's right. kind of good. It's It was actually pretty good. A little cringy, but it was still good, though. It was based off of like a Nickelodeon show, which makes it sound weird, but it was cool, I promise. Okay. <laughs> All right, so Megan Baby's site said that she was 14 years old. She had to say she was 14 because MySpace didn't allow people under 14 to make a page. That she was from Ghetto, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, her linked name was Pretty and Bling 16. So, like, you know how you, that was the URL. That was the same as her AOL screen name. So, it was the same thing. She wrote that she was an eighth grader at ICD school and that she was going to St. Dominic High School next year. And she said, um, I like love to hip hop dance and I love to shop. Yeah, there's really hot guys in my school. They are fine. Exclamation, exclamation. It makes me so glad to not be 13 anymore. She also stated that she loved volleyball and her dog. She included an acrostic poem on her page. And that's like, it's like a name poem. Like all the letters of your name spell something out. She said, Megan, 
M is for modern, E is for enthusiastic, G is for goofy, A is for alluring, and N is for neglected. Wow. It's kind of sad. Snap, crackle, pop. She really... Uh... Yeah. She landed that on us yeah. at the end. Wow. Whew. Now, unlike Facebook, MySpace doesn't require users to identify themselves with a first and last name. Now, technically at 13, Megan was too young to join MySpace, but it was very easy to get around age restrictions, and it happened so often. Days after the creation of her MySpace page, Megan received a friend request from Josh Evans. Josh was 16 with blue eyes and brown wavy hair. His profile stated that he was 6'3 and had a great chest. (laughs) Sorry, that was, I couldn't say that. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Preferred Coke to Pepsi, didn't eat sushi. He owned a trillion CDs and he liked pizza with green peppers, pepperoni, and sausage. He listened to Rascal Flatts, Corn, and Nickelback. Oh, that's, that's a rough trio. He's got going on. That's kind of what you had, though, during that time. I guess so. You know? Yeah. That was a rough time for music. I didn't realize. For those genres, I guess, yeah. His turn-ons included tongue piercings and being nibbled on the ear. He included a short story that clued people into his life situation. When I was seven, my dad left me and my mom and my older brother and my newborn brother. Poor mom. Yeah, she had such a hard time finding work to pay for us after he left. Underneath that, he placed a questionnaire in which questions were asked and he wrote the answers. So when someone asked a goal that he had, he said he would like to meet a girl with long brown hair. The next question asked what your dream girl weighed, and he answered that it didn't really matter to him. Now, this seemed like Megan's dream boy, and he had added her. So she begged her mother if she could accept his request. Tina finally agreed that she could add him. But if he ever got crossed, she said she had to delete him. Okay, so let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor, Etitude. It's hard for us sleeping at night with all the murders and serial killers we research. But what makes it harder is heavy sheets. We usually wake up hot and get a terrible night's sleep because of it. I think I used to spend more time tossing and turning than I did sleeping. But recently we found Etitude and we love it. They are the best sheets I've ever slept on. And if you want to get the best sleep of your life, you've got to try Attitude Sheets. So you're probably thinking that these are just like every other set of sheets, but I promise you that they're not. First and foremost, the comfort is unbelievable. We look forward to climbing into bed every night. We actually threw out all of our other sheets and restocked them all with Attitude. The organic bamboo lyocell is extremely breathable and it regulates your temperature to improve your quality of sleep. They are also antimicrobial. Some customers have claimed that they even see an improvement in their skin appearance since switching to Etitude sheets. And to make things even better, they are great for the environment. Organic bamboo lyocell recycles 89% of the water it uses, so it's the most sustainable bedding available. Cotton uses a ton of pesticides and wastewater is harmful on the environment. So why not Etitude? These amazing sheets have a 30-day risk treat. These amazing sheets have a 30-day risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your sheets for a full refund. They even cover shipping on returns. Attitude is betting for the educated and conscious consumer. It's 100% organic bamboo made with non-toxic manufacturing process. It's hypoallergenic and antimicrobial. Attitude sheets, they're soft as silk, breathable as linen, but at the price of cotton. You're going to love them. And right now, 
our listeners will get 20% off their sheet set and free shipping. Just text TCC to 474747. The only way to get 20% off of your set of Etitude sheets and free shipping is to text TCC to the number 474747. Again, that's TCC to 474747. Messages and data rates may apply. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Over the next four weeks, Megan, as well as her friends from Catholic school, were friends with and talking to Josh. However, most of his conversations and all of his flirting was with Megan. Everything was kept PG-13, but the two were definitely getting closer. They even planned their fake wedding. Four weeks in, and it was safe to say that Megan had told Josh all of her deepest secrets and feelings. Megan kept wanting to talk to Josh on the phone, but he kept telling her that he didn't have a phone to talk on, and they wouldn't have privacy on his house phone. Once Tina saw that Josh had asked Megan whether or not she wanted to pet his pet snake, she told Megan that she didn't like that kind of talk, but Megan just told her that she was being gross and thinking the wrong way. Once when Tina logged on, Josh messaged her thinking it was Megan. Tina replied, I think you're too old for my daughter, because there was a three-year age difference. She said Josh logged off right away. Tina and Ron were concerned about this new boy their daughter was spending all this time talking to. They contacted their local police to see if they could find out any more information on him. I know, it's kind of an interesting move. Okay, I know I don't want to spark a controversy. I just want to say, oh, I want to say first, too, that I don't know how I would handle it because I'm not a parent. But I know when you always hear that but, too, you're always like, okay, but what, you know? (laughs) Um, But I just think that that is a little extreme, I feel like. I guess they, you know, they are very conscious of what their daughter's doing. And I think that that's fantastic because there's some parents that don't do that at all. But I think it might be a little too much. I think it's too extreme is what I mean. I agree with you. I think it's a little too extreme. What I think I would do as a parent, if I was in that situation, was I would request to talk to his parents, like his mother. Yeah. I think that would I, be I the think that would best be a first step. Better move than call than the just cops. going right to police. Yeah. However, they were not able to locate any Josh Evans in the town, and that was as much as the police could legally do, as no crime has been committed or threats made. So after this, Megan told Josh. Hey, my mom contacted the Popo to see if you were real or not. And Josh said, she's probably just protecting you. And this kind of raised another red flag for Tina because a real 16-year-old boy, and I completely agree with this, probably would have had some choice words for her. You know, like he would have been like, your parents are stupid or something like that. You know, like a real 16-year-old boy would have said that. Yeah, most likely. So something definitely felt off to Tina, but she was happy to see Megan happy again. So she allowed her daughter to continue this PG-13 friendship. But everything changed on October 15th of 2006. Megan got a message from Josh that said, I heard you were mean to your friends. She responded in rapid messages after she wasn't getting any responses. At 8.57, she said, what? A minute after, she said, um, how about, no, where the hell did you get this? Two minutes after that, she said, who are you even talking about? Um, yeah, I don't know. 
And at 9.03, she said, okay, how about no? Tell me who they are. And yeah, so whatever, you know, you ain't too nice yourself. And then two minutes after that, she said, what the hell did I even say? So it seemed like she was a little bit desperate to get a response from Josh because this seemed to be the only negative thing that he had ever said to her. But Megan didn't get a response that night. She barely slept at all. And the next day at school, her anxiety was sky high. That day, she was supposed to hand out invitations to her 14th birthday party, where they were going to play a game of flashlight tag around the subdivision. Tina picked Megan up at school at around 3.20, and she said Megan ran right down to the basement where her computer was, and she logged on. She yelled down to Megan to get off the computer because she had to take Megan's younger sister to the orthodontist, and her father was upstairs taking a nap as he had worked the night shift. And he couldn't be downstairs with her. Because remember, they always wanted someone there. I mean, it's, once again, it's very, it's your due diligence, I mean, and it's very protective. So Yeah. But Megan didn't log off the computer because Josh was online. And all of a sudden, as if a switch was flipped, their relationship had completely changed. Tina called Megan once she got to the orthodontist's office. And Megan was crying when she picked up the phone. She told her mother that she was still online and that kids were making fun of her. Tina told her daughter to log off of the computer and not listen to them. 20 minutes later, she called her daughter back. At this point, Megan was sobbing. The only thing that Megan could get out was, Mom, I can't even explain it. Tina said that she needed to log off and that she would be home soon. Tina and her younger daughter got home at 5 p.m., They found Megan in front of the computer screen in extreme distress. It seemed that a war had broken out amongst Josh and Megan's friends from school, her old school and her new school. Apparently, in confidence, Megan had told Josh some things about her old and new friends, and he was now letting them know. This meant it was all of these girls, Megan's new friends and Josh, the boy she loved, against her. Tina began reading through the messages, and she was shocked. Megan had called one of the girls a slut, and she had said it right back to her daughter. While Tina was arguing with Megan to get off the computer, another message came in. Someone called Megan fat, and Tina saw her daughter reply, I'm skinny now. And Tina looked at her daughter and said, why would you say that? And Megan yelled at her, you're my mom. You're supposed to be on my side. And as Tina went to call for her husband, Ron, one final message came into the computer. Megan saw it, responded, and ran up the stairs, bumping into her father on the way up. This is when Ron and Tina began looking through all of the messages that had come in in that hour and 40 minutes from all those different people. They were shocked, and they didn't know what to do or say. How could things have gotten so vicious so quickly? What should they say or even do? After about 20 minutes, Tina went to go check on her daughter. Tina said as she was walking up to her daughter's room, she had this god-awful feeling in the pit of her stomach. She went upstairs and opened her door. A few weeks ago, Megan asked her father to take off her closet doors so she could hang up a shimmery, sheer purple curtain, and he had done this for her. Now, behind those curtains, she could see her daughter hanging from her closet organizer. She had used a cloth belt 
Tina had just bought her from Old Navy. Tina screamed, and Ron came running. And somewhere in between the sobbing and trying to keep Megan's sister out of the room, the police and ambulance were called. But it was clear that Megan had passed away. Ron went again to look at the final message that Megan received before running up the stairs, right past him. It was a message from Josh. It said, You're a shitty person, and the world would be a better place without you in it. His daughter responded, You're the kind of boy a girl would kill herself over. Tina and Ron were devastated at the loss of their daughter. Their marriage was failing, and they were barely functioning. They didn't think that things could get worse. Until they did. On November 25th, 2006, the police informed Ron and Tina that Josh Evans was a fabrication. Their 13-year-old daughter was not talking to a 16-year-old boy. She was talking to Lori Drew and a few others that were in on the hoax. In fact, Josh's profile was created to specifically appeal to all of Megan's insecurities. This is like the first legitimate catfish, right? If you think about it. Yeah. Well, I'm or sure it's happened them. before, but it's well, a very all, early case. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's very public, you know, like, this is a catfish. I mean, they... I think it's even worse than a catfish, only because this was made with malintent. It wasn't just some fake profile trying to communicate. Like, someone made this profile to hurt this girl. It... And, like, and like you said, it was made... For her insecurities. For her insecurities, which which brings it to like a deeper, more emotionally disturbing level. Right. Like they made the boy, they picked an attractive boy. They made him likable because of his backstory of his father leaving. And then they even had that questionnaire asking about the weight of his dream girl and him saying he didn't care. You see what I'm saying? Like it was tailored oh, yeah. to her. Yeah. I, you know That's malicious. Yeah. It's a little disturbing. I feel like... Um, that an adult would do that. Yeah. It's mind-blowing, actually. It is. So, before we get any further into the discussion, let's just take a quick break to hear from our third sponsor, Wix. Are you looking to create a website? Join us and 140 million other people in choosing Wix.com for our website building needs. Something I have found amazing as a Wix user since I was in college in 2012 is that Wix has constantly been adding new features to its tool belt, but the creation process still remains easy and fun. Wix easily allows you to stay up to date with new technology. Now, if you have a business, Wix is 100% for you. Their business solutions are unmatched. Wix allows you to manage and grow your business online all in one place. Wix Pro Gallery lets you display high-quality images and videos, while Wix Videos allows you to showcase and sell your videos online. Personally, we love the next feature, which is Wix Blog, as it helps us interact better with our listeners or helps me better interact with my students. Another helpful feature of the Business Solutions section is Wix Booking, which creates an easy scheduling system by letting customers book and schedule appointments on your site. We promise you'll love your website using Wix.com. They have been helping us create professional and beautiful websites for years. You can get started now by going to Wix.com. And you can get 10% off by going to Wix.com slash podcast. Again, that's Wix.com slash podcast for 10% off. Okay, so let's get back to the show. 
As you could expect, Tina and Ron were outraged. They had a place to direct their anger now, whereas before they were very angry at themselves. I mean, you have to imagine the last words that Tina heard her daughter say was, you're my mom, you're supposed to be on my side. And she angrily ran past her father and like bumped into him on the stairs. So their last interaction with their daughter is something that they're always going to remember. So they were blaming themselves. And now that they can blame someone else, it kind of gave them an outlet. And that's where they're going to focus their aggressions now. Now, when they found out this information, this is like super messed up. The Drews, a week before they found this out, actually had the nerve to ask them if they could store a foosball table that they bought their kids for Christmas. So like they wanted to hide the foosball table from their kids and they asked the Myers to store it in their garage. Knowing full well their daughter just committed suicide because of them. I mean, that's pretty ballsy. Yeah. Well, they had the whole, this whole time, just keep in mind that the Drews show zero remorse for what they did creating that face my fake myspace page so tina and ron took an axe and a sledgehammer to the table once it was destroyed they dumped the pieces on the drew's front yard and tina spray painted the words merry christmas on the debris well at least she got some of her anger out on this yeah but that's definitely not going to be the end of the disputes between the two families so when the drews found the debris on their front lawn they called the police it is actually perfect that the Drews had called the police because they wanted to speak to that family anyway after finding out the Josh Evans account was fake and theirs. It is in this report where Lori is notifying police of a neighborly dispute that she is vaguely aware of the Josh Evans hoax. She told police that she felt this incident contributed to Megan's suicide, but she did not feel guilty as she once did because at the funeral, she found out that Megan had tried to commit suicide before. However, I do want to add that that's not true. There were no prior suicide attempts by the young girl. Now, after the lawn incident, Ron was charged with a misdemeanor, but he denied it. It was clear to investigators early on that there was something wrong with Josh Evans. So right after Megan's suicide, all traces of Josh Evans were deleted off of MySpace. However, the police were able to recover the account with the help of MySpace, and they found out that the IP address used in the sending of the messages through AOL and MySpace belonged to the Drews. Upon further questioning after the lawn incident, the Drews admitted that they had both sent messages to Megan Meyer as Josh Evans, as did their daughter and two 18-year-old employees. Now, the two 18-year-old employees were neighbors. They were the daughter of Michelle Maltford. Um, we don't know her name because she was under 18. And Ashley Grills, who was 18. Maltford admitted when she spoke with police that the Myers had asked her to get involved with the plot because of what Megan had done to their daughter. The Drew said that Sarah had been called a lesbian and she was excluded from all neighborhood activities and made fun of at school because of what Megan Meyer had done. Mulford admitted that at the insistence of the Drews, she had been the one to send the first message that was the catalyst for the fight, the I heard you were meeting to your friends message. Mulford said that after the suicide, she received a frantic phone call in which her mother heard from Lori Drew telling her not to talk about Josh Evans. 
So as soon as she heard about the suicide, Lori Drew was trying to cover it up and she called the girl and said, don't tell anybody. The Drews also admitted to knowing Megan was on antidepressants, ADD medication, and mood stabilizers. As like we had said before, Megan had gone on vacations with them in the past. The police had relayed this information to the Meyer family, but asked them to keep this information quiet as the investigation continued. So they preyed on this girl knowing that she was already depressed and was on mood stabilizers and antidepressants. They did this despite that. Right, and you know what? This is like a horrible adult. I mean, you know, you know what you're doing. And even if Megan did call her daughter a lesbian or whatever other insult slut this whatever what may be that doesn't justify your behavior into making this fake profile to feed on her insecurities and pretty much force her to commit suicide push her over the edge no matter what happens adults have to stay the adults in the situation yeah right exactly and that's not what happened here now only weeks later on december 3rd the prosecutor after reviewing all the available information, announced that no charges would be brought. The prosecutor believed that the Drews were guilty only of egregious judgment that set off a chain of horrible events and deep insensitivity in the aftermath, meaning that they really didn't care about what happened. Now, when he says insensitivity in the aftermath, he truly means it. The Drews made it abundantly clear that they were not remorseful for what they did. However, no criminal act had been committed. After all, there were no precedents to this case, as it was 2006. The prosecutor used the Duke Lacrosse case as a cautionary tale. Now, the Duke Lacrosse case actually happened that year. And um, if you're not familiar with that, it was a stripper had accused the Duke Lacrosse team of um, sexual attack that later was proven to be false. So... He said, we can't succumb to the passions of an angered community, as happened in the Duke Lacrosse case. So that's why, just because everyone's really upset about this, we have to remember that no laws are broken, is what the prosecutor said from O'Fallon, Missouri. So as far as, you know, he could tell there's no laws broken, so what can he do? I mean, his job, that's all he can do. Yes, legally. They did not break any laws. But you know what? I guess court the court opinion. of public opinion, you know you're a shitty person. Yeah, they were found And you're guilty. a shitty family for doing that. Regardless of the other side and what they might have done, it doesn't matter. Like I said before, that doesn't justify your behavior. You know what I'm saying? For you to be, I guess, you know, more fucked up than, mm-hmm. you know, what they were doing to you. I mean, it's childish. And you literally are supposed to be the adult. You know... You're supposed to be the rock, you know, and you can't be doing things like this. It's just, it's it's unheard of and it's uncalled for. It's Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. I think that it, well, right now at this point, remember, the Myers had to keep this a secret. They weren't allowed to tell people this because the investigation was going on. But now that the charges, there were going to be no charges, they were going to let people know what happened. The Myers were enraged at the fact that no charges were brought against Lori Drew. Ron and Tina Meyer went out of their way to make sure the community knew that the Drews had been the one responsible for the suicide of their daughter. Ron drove by that January and yelled to the couple as they were shoveling their driveway, who are you going to kill today? Loud enough for everyone to hear. They also made sure that the neighbors knew 
and no one else used their advertising services because that was the business they had. They were advertisers. But no matter what they did, it was not enough to stop their anger. Finally, they contacted Steve Pokin, a journalist with the local newspaper, the Suburban Journal. He had a column called Pokin Around, which is very punny. I like it. Where he reveals things or scams within the community. Pokin broke the story, as told by the Myers, about what happened to their daughter. But he did not name the Drews specifically or the girls who worked for them. A quote from Tina in the article states, I know that they did not physically come up to our house and tie a belt around her neck. But when adults are involved and continue to screw with a 13-year-old girl with or without mental problems, it's absolutely vile. When this article broke, it spread like wildfire in the community, then in the state, and then in the country. Everyone was thrown through a loop. Techies, schools, First Amendment advocates, parents, bloggers, the MySpace community. Nobody knew what to do with this story. It was the first of its kind. It seemed that in some way, everyone had been a victim of catfishing to some degree, right? Because as soon as this story comes out, a lot of people, other people are going to say, like, this happened to me. And, And I have to say, when MySpace first began, I remember what we now call catfishing happening all the time. When I was in high school, I had a friend who thought she was dating somebody online and we found out later that it was another one of our friends, another girl. And it was like kind of brushed under the rug pretty quickly, but that was, it was very elaborate. It went on for years. So things like that did happen a lot when MySpace first became a thing because people can now hide behind these different identities. But was it legal? Was it illegal? No one knew because this had never happened before. So who was responsible for this? The country was arguing for both sides. Was the problem the culture, the internet, the children, or the adults that were acting like children? At that point, the Myers were a broken family. Tina and Ron were getting a divorce. Tina had moved back into her parents' house with the family's now only daughter. And Ron stayed in the family house in the Waterford subdivision, with the Drews still living only feet away. But the couple remained friends. And as the story broke across the country, they went through the media circuit together, telling anyone who would listen Megan's story. It's sad because, you know, they did truly take all the precautions they could. They were in the room with her. I mean, look, you yeah, you, you can't, can't fault them at all. No, and you can't protect yeah. your ch- children from everything, which is sad because it's what you want to do. The Myers have stated that they don't hold Ashley Grills or Michelle Mulford's daughter responsible. They believe that they were also children in this scenario that were manipulated. They said Megan could have easily fallen for the same kind of thing if she was that age. Shortly after the Polkin story broke, Tina Meyer ran into Lori Drew at a shopping center. Lori was trying to get businesses to use her advertising company. And Tina went into each store after Lori left to tell the merchants what kind of woman Lori Drew was. In the parking lot, the two ladies faced each other. Tina, just please stop this, Lori said. And Tina told her that she'll never stop. However, now that the story had broken... Many others wanted vengeance as well, 
police presence had to be beefed up on Waterford Crystal Drive, as the Drews property had been vandalized several times. A brick had been thrown through their window, and the side of their house was shot by paintball guns. It seemed as if they were in bunker mode. They even drove to get the mail. Hate websites and blogs created horrible images using pictures of Lori Drew. The family has not made any public statements themselves, but through their lawyer, they only stated that they are claiming that all messages sent from Josh to Megan were positive, except for in the last 24 hours. But that almost makes it worse because you built up that emotional relationship. Yeah, she was built all the way up to be torn down. Correct. It's terrible. The mayor of O'Fallon, as well as the prosecutor, also received calls and emails demanding that the Druze faced repercussions for their actions. In response, the mayor passed an ordinance that had to do with harassment and cyber harassment. But that was all that she could do. In 2008, a prosecutor in Los Angeles, California, asserted jurisdiction over the local police in Missouri because MySpace is based in Los Angeles. That prosecutor, Thomas O'Brien, did want to pursue the case. So he felt like this case was really messed up. And technically, I could prosecute this and I want to prosecute this. So he actually took the case on for the Myers, which was a pretty big deal. And it was a very risky career move for himself. He gave immunity to Ashley Grills if she would testify against the Druze. The girl agreed, as she had been deeply affected by Megan's suicide, spending a significant amount of time in a psychiatric facility. So there's a lot of lives that were affected by this. Well, because you have to think, when you are directly involved in what you, you made her commit suicide... You're responsible that, for you're someone's responsible. suicide. That's damaging to you as well. Right. So Lori Drew was found guilty in a federal court of law of three misdemeanors for unauthorized computer access. She was found not guilty of felony computer hacking and conspiracy. However, in the sentencing phase of the trial, the judge overruled the decision of the jury and directed an acquittal of Lori Drew. While the judge was explaining his decision, Tina Meyer walked out of the courtroom. And I don't blame her. I don't blame her either. So a jury says you're guilty... And the judge is like, no, that doesn't make any sense, which is pretty crazy. And it's actually really rare for that to take place. So I, I was shocked by the ending of that case. But the Myers, although divorced, do work in ending cyberbullying. But as we can see with all of these cases that we see on the news, this is something that happens all the time now. It's a very common occurrence. So I just think if the judge would have set that precedent in this case, it may have made people think twice about what they do. I agree. I also think, though, that instead of only worrying about, you know, the Internet and, you know, what apps or programs you would, you know, your kids are using, it should be more about the culture. Because like the way you talk the to them. You, and... Yeah, the way you talk to them, you know, what's accepted, what's not accepted, because kids go wild. Kids go especially online. Really wild. It's yeah. it's shocking to see what even if something happens like within the school and you hear about, oh, this kid said this thing online and you're like, I don't know them to be that person. So it is it does happen where kids personalities change online. Yeah. So it this case was just 
heartbreaking all around because so many people's lives were affected. But I do applaud the Myers for sticking together and trying to fight cyberbullying. Yeah, and this episode is like a, a great segue into the future of certain cases that are going to have to deal with similar similar material. Right, because now we have this technology and can someone truly be held responsible for another person's actions? Yeah. And it is very similar to the case of Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy. It is, and it will be interesting to see our take and on how we that. kind of figure everything out. All right, guys. Well, we will see you soon for our next episode, for episode 57. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. And we just want to remind you that if you like the podcast, it's so helpful if you leave any reviews and you tell a friend about us because that's the best way for us to get this podcast out there. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye, guys.